Let Mysteries at Midnight be your destination for detective whodunits and captivating mystery stories. You'll hear classic stories like Sherlock Holmes, Agatha Christie's Poirot, and short tales from H.G. Wells, Charles Dickens, Edgar Allan Poe, and others. I'm Christopher, and I read these classic stories in the soothing style of a bedtime story, so you can listen to them in bed when you drift off to sleep. Search for Mysteries at Midnight on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favourite podcast app, and follow and subscribe so you don't miss out on new episodes. Hello, my name is Matt, host of the Pirate History Podcast. Pirates rank among the most mythologized and romanticized of all historical figures. It can become easy to forget that pirates were real people that had real-world concerns. If you like tales of high seas adventure, daring do, and also want to learn more about who Blackbeard supported to be king, you can learn more about all of that at the Pirate History Podcast. Hi there, Pax Britannica fans. In listening to this captivating podcast, you have by now come across numerous figures that changed the course of history forever, which is great because maybe you have an appetite to learn about others. I'm Mark Pimenta, the host of the Warlords of History podcast, focused on intriguing warriors and leaders, ancient and medieval, that were titans during their respective ages, where, over several episodes, we'll review each of their lifetimes and actions, but also take this further by exploring the surrounding environmental and political conditions, their motivations for taking on the mantle of war. We'll cover what they did, how they did it, and finally, what their legacy was beyond their demise. If any of this interests you, join me as we dive into each of their lifetimes, their worlds, in the Warlords of History podcast. Available on all major podcast platforms or accessed via warlordsofhistory.com. Welcome to Pax Britannica. Season 2, Episode 21, The Grand Remonstrance. Welcome back to Pax Britannica. I'm your host, Samuel Hume. Last time, we saw how the news of the Irish Rebellion sparked a wave of hysteria in both England and Scotland. Atrocities which were already newsworthy were inflated and exaggerated by pamphleteers, eager to lean into the anti-Catholic and anti-Irish sentiment, already rife in both kingdoms. The estimated number of Protestant settlers killed by the Catholic Irish grew with every telling, to the point that it dwarfed the total number of settlers ever present in Ireland, and their deaths were depicted in brutal detail. We also saw how the Scottish Parliament reacted to the Rising. An expedition was dispatched to Ulster, led by Major General Robert Munro and Alexander Leslie, Earl of Leathen, consisting of 10,000 Covenanter troops by the summer of 1642. Despite initial successes, complete with atrocities against Irish civilians and prisoners, 
the Covenanter forces were soon bogged down into a stalemate. Poor supplies and late pay, which were meant to be provided by the English Parliament, didn't help Monroe's campaign. But the relatively rapid and coordinated response by the Scots was not matched by their southern neighbours. We last spoke about the English political situation a few months ago. After the execution of Strafford and the imposition of several Junto members to Charles's Privy Council, the English Parliament had enjoyed a summer of successes. But as Parliament entered its autumn recess, the momentum began to disappear. The more radical plans of the Junto, such as the root and branch reforms of the Church of England, had their passionate supporters, but they also stirred up the resentment of moderates. Ensuring the rights of Parliament and the abolition of tyrannical devices like Star Chamber, well, that was one thing. Abolishing the bishops? That was quite another. It certainly didn't help the Junto's popularity when the tax to pay the Covenant army was blamed on them. This had been an acceptable cost for Parliament. The presence of the Covenanters ensured Charles's compliance. However, once the Covenant army withdrew across the border, this counterweight went with them. Charles's visit to Scotland in order to finalise the peace agreement left the English Parliament in the lurch. They dispatched their own agents to ensure that the Covenanters remembered their English friends, and with nothing else to do but wait, the Parliament adjourned for six weeks. It was entirely likely that, with the most pressing matters now resolved and regular parliaments guaranteed, that it would return only to dissolve itself. When they reconvened late in October 1641, it was to the dramatic news of the incident. Clearly, John Pym and other members of the Junto declared, the King and his advisers remained willing to use military force against their political enemies, and if the worst rumours of the incident were true, were more than fine with assassination. Pym himself claims to have received a package containing a note and a rag. The rag was from a plague victim, and the note was a death threat. Hardly Charles's style, and Pym had made himself many enemies with his campaigning for reform, but it added fuel to the fire. And then, on the 1st of November, News from Ireland struck London like a thunderbolt. Everything we talked about last week, the inflated casualty figures, the barbaric and cruel murders, the fears of Catholic conspiracy, spread through London like wildfire. The House of Commons was in session when the report from the Dublin government arrived, and the report was greeted by a stunned silence. It was the Catholic conspiracy they had feared for so long. Much like in Scotland, the Parliament of England moved quickly in response to the news. Joint committees from both the Commons and the Lords agreed to a raft of preparations. They ordered the recruitment of an army of 6,000 infantry and 2,000 cavalry to suppress the rebellion. Ships would be sent to guard the Irish coast to prevent the rebels receiving reinforcements and supplies from Europe, and more importantly, preventing the rebels from landing in Britain. The City of London would be asked for a loan of £50,000, £20,000 of which would be immediately granted from available funds, and a supply of weaponry and ammunition would be sent from Carlisle to Carrickfergus. On top of these measures decided by the Joint Committees, the House of Commons called for volunteers to fight in Ireland, and began passing a bill to press men into service. All well and good, but Parliament 
was conducting these military preparations without the authorization of the king. It wasn't like they could just pop down to Whitehall to run it by him and at least try and present these preparations as constitutional. Charles was still in Scotland. Parliament wrote to him to request his urgent return, but carried on regardless. On the 5th of November, the offer of assistance from the Parliament of Scotland was received in London. The Commons and the Lords argued over how much to rely on the Scots, with the Commons pressing for the full 10,000 men offered, while the Lords were concerned that this granted too much influence to the Scots in a theatre which the English jealously guarded. We know from last episode that the Scottish expedition will reach 10,000 men by the summer of 1642, though at this stage a much smaller force was requested. Charles remained in Scotland until the Scottish parliamentary session ended on the 17th of November, and on the 25th he entered London in a grand procession. Met by the Lord Mayor and the Aldermen of the city, and escorted by 500 cavalry, Charles was welcomed by bonfires and the tolling of every parish church bell, a sumptuous feast at the Guildhall, and partying across the city. One contemporary noted that the following day thousands of people were suffering from their excessive drinking. This was a success for Charles, a sign that he was still loved by his subjects, but it's impossible to explain this joyous welcome home for the king with a single reason. To quote Tim Harris in Rebellion, quote, We might ask what the people were cheering for. The king's safe return from Scotland? A king who had abolished bishops in Scotland as anti-Christian? one who would deal with the threat of radical Puritanism in England, or one who would hopefully restore Protestant English control over Ireland. Waiting for Charles in London was a decidedly unwelcoming John Pym, notorious asshole. On the 8th of November, while Charles was still in Scotland, Pym and his allies of the Junto tabled the Grand Remonstrance, a comprehensive list of all of the things wrong with Charles's reign. Compiled over the course of the year by various parliamentary committees, it was a truly mammoth complaint. In its opening brief, it blamed the, quote, malignant and pernicious design of subverting the fundamental laws and principles of government upon which the religion and justice of this kingdom are firmly established, end quote. Then, came 98 separate articles, each presenting an example of this pernicious design, dating from Charles's dissolution of the useless Parliament in 1625, and all the way to the calling of the Long Parliament 15 years later. But it wasn't just a list of complaints. Oh no, Pym is nothing if not a problem solver. After the 98 articles of complaint came 65 articles detailing how the Long Parliament had already solved many of these problems. Then came 41 more articles which explained, in detail, the further reforms required to address the sickness afflicting the country. Of course, throughout the remonstrance, Pym and the other authors took care to watch their wording. Obviously, the king wasn't the source of this malignant design, he was just badly advised. That old chestnut, the safest way to criticise a monarch's rule without criticising the monarch. The remonstrance recommended that the king form a royal commission, made up of men chosen by Parliament, of course, who would root out the evildoers behind the malignant design. To guard against further evil advice, 
Parliament would have a veto over who Charles picked to be his ministers. Charles had been forced to grant this concession in Scotland, and now the Grand Remonstrance demanded the same for England. This had been proposed by Pym earlier in the year as part of the Ten Propositions, but Charles had simply ignored them then. Now, his opponents in Parliament were trying again. The Grand Remonstrance is a useful barometer to measure opinion in the Commons, because when it finally passed, after 12 hours of heated debate and ending in the wee hours of the morning, it only did so narrowly. 159 eyes, 148 noes. Compared to the relatively united front which Parliament had been only a year previously, this is quite the divide. For many in the Lords and the Commons, this was a watershed moment. Former die-hard critics of Charles's government, Edward Hyde amongst them, saw this as a radical departure from the necessary reforms which they had already achieved. Hyde, the future Earl of Clarendon, noted that many in the House viewed it as unnecessary and unseasonable. It was unnecessary because the issues had already been resolved by earlier reforms, and it was unseasonable because the King had only just returned from Scotland. Dropping a phone book of complaints on his desk was no way to welcome him home. Now, this is the Commons, and you may be wondering what the Lords thought about the Grand Remonstrance, and that's a very good question, because it was never presented to the Lords, and they did not vote to present it to the King. Now, Charles had his critics in the Upper House, as we well know, but much like in the Commons, many of the Lords viewed the Remonstrance as too radical. Only a few Lords actively promoted and supported the Remonstrance while it was being considered in the Commons, and it was likely to have been rejected if it had reached the Lords. This lack of vocal support hurt the Remonstrance, but not as much as if the Lords had voted to reject it. But by far the most inflammatory aspect of the Grand Remonstrance was John Hamden's proposal that it be published for public consumption. This was not the normal way of doing things. Publication usually waited until the Lords had officially considered a bill or document, and they hadn't done that. Critics of this move argued that to publish the Remonstrance outside of the established protocol was illegal, and clearly intended to influence public opinion against the Lords and against the King. Hyde claimed it would produce mischievous effects. The opponents of publication won the subsequent vote, and the Remonstrance was not published. Yet. But before we follow the course of the Grand Remonstrance, it's worth noting how things appeared to be improving for the King. As we touched on before, Parliament had begun preparations for a military response to the Irish Rebellion, and in doing so, were trying to usurp Charles's traditional role. The King had himself proposed the raising of an army of 10,000 to fight in Ireland, but the Junto was unwilling to trust him with such a force. But when the Junto attempted to pass a militia bill, formally depriving him of his authority over the army, he maintained enough support in the Lords to have it voted down. Charles also maintained his position as the chief defender of conformism against the radical reforms of the Puritans, and this won him much support. 
But perhaps the act with the greatest potential to bring this chaotic parliament to an end was his proclamation that absentee MPs and Lords returned to parliament by the 12th of January 1642. Many of those now absent were supporters of the King, who had made themselves scarce over the previous year. If they all returned, it was very possible that Charles's supporters could combine with moderates who considered the work of the Parliament to be complete to vote to dissolve it. All the King had to do was make it through December without making any kind of terrible, terrible mistake. Was the Sphinx 10,000 years old? Were there serial killers in ancient Greece and Rome? What were the lives of transgender, intersex, and non-binary people like in the ancient world? We're Jen. And Jenny. From Ancient History Fangirl. We tell you true stories and tall tales of the ancient world. Sometimes we do it tipsy. Sometimes we have amazing guests on our show. Historians like Barry Strauss, podcasters like Liv Albert, Mike Duncan, and authors like Joanne Harris and Ben Aronovich. We take you to the top of Hadrian's Wall to watch the Roman Empire fall at the end of the world. We walk the catacombs beneath the Temple of the Feathered Serpent under Teotihuacan. We walk the sacred spirals of the Nazca Lines in search of ancient secrets. And we explore mythology from ancient cultures around the world. Come find us at ancienthistoryfangirl.com or wherever you get your podcasts. On the 1st of December, representatives of the Commons presented their grand remonstrance to the King, together with a petition of their own. In the accompanying petition, they again reiterated that their complaints were made in good faith, in the spirit of loyalty to His Majesty, and that their concerns lay with the behaviour and ill counsel of his advisers. This evil advice had meant calamity for the kingdom. War between England and Scotland, the breakdown of Charles's relationship with his subjects, and the rebellion in Ireland. The path forwards, the petition argued, was to grant Parliament a veto over official appointments, to abolish the episcopacy, and to quote, forbear to alienate any of the forfeited and desheated lands in Ireland. Charles received both the Grand Remonstrance and the Petition, but of course he was ever so slightly reluctant to abolish the bishops or to surrender his prerogative to appoint his own ministers. He bade the members farewell and said he would consider their petition. But, well aware of the earlier motion in the Commons to print the Remonstrance, he explicitly forbade the publication of either document until he had made his decision known. But after two weeks, with still no decision from Charles, the Commons went ahead and ordered the publication of both the Grand Remonstrance and the petition on the 15th of December. As expected, they were received very positively by the crowds of London, and now the king would have to respond. Respond he did, on the 23rd, outright rejecting both the Grand Remonstrance and the petition. He refused to abolish the episcopacy, and declared that the question of Irish land would wait until the rebellion was quelled. On the appointment of his ministers, he was direct. The sole authority to appoint or dismiss advisers was, quote, the undoubted right of the Crown of England. 
He also criticised the unparliamentariness of the Grand Remonstrance and the Commons for publishing it. Through December, London was increasingly restless. After the hearty welcome that Charles had received came a petition, said to have been signed by 20,000 people, which impressed on the king that their happiness at his return did not equal dissatisfaction with Parliament. It also called for further reform of the Church, the removal of the bishops and suspected Catholics from Parliament, and their fears of widespread conspiracies within England and Ireland. There are hints in the petitioner's address that they had trouble collecting signatures, with ill-affected persons interrupting the process. There had already been riots and brawls over these questions, to the point that Charles dispatched 200 halberdiers to guard the commons and avert any chaotic public assemblies as the petition was presented. The king also issued a proclamation essentially condemning anyone who sought to disturb the peace or alter the existing institutions of the Church of England. The proclamation was well received by many people. Harris references a celebration in Dover when it was read out, for example. But once again, Charles's use of military force was suspect. The commons considered the halberdiers not as a protection from the mob, but as a guard against the MPs themselves. A vote was passed which stated that to set soldiers around Parliament without Parliament's consent was a violation of privilege. Once the petition was received by the Commons, they ordered an inquiry to establish who had sent the soldiers. Two days before Charles issued his response to the Grand Remonstrance, elections were held for the Common Council of the City of London, and the results displayed the depth of sympathy within the city to his parliamentary critics. Radical Puritans made up a significant number of the new councillors, and others were known to back MPs critical of the king. The day after this election, the day before Charles gave his response on the remonstrance, he caused yet another public relations nightmare, and once again this related to the military. He dismissed the Lieutenant of the Tower, Sir William Balfour, and replaced him with Colonel Thomas Lunsford. Balfour had been the castellan who had defied the First Army plot, which, if you recall, had intended to capture the Tower of London and to release Strafford. Lunsford was a former outlaw, attempted murderer, and veteran of the Royal Army which fought at Newburn. From Charles's perspective, he saw a city that was veering towards sedition, and he was trying to restore control. The Tower was central to any royal response and it needed to be in the hands of someone he could rely on. Balfour was not that man, whereas Lunsford was. The response to this act was fairly predictable. Merchants from the city began withdrawing their valuables from the tower's mint. There was a general fear that the tower artillery would fire on London, and the common council, freshly elected, petitioned the commons for Lunsford's removal. The commons shared these concerns. Pym saw the replacement of Balfour as the first step of a coup, and he knew that in such a coup he would be among the first to be targeted. The lower house immediately voted that Lunsford was unfit for the position, while on the streets libels spread out from secret presses. Lunsford was a cannibal, they said. Lunsford ate children. Rumours followed that, after Christmas, the city apprentices would rise up 
and remove Lunsford from the tower by force. In the end, Lunsford got to enjoy Christmas Day as Lieutenant of the Tower, and he was dismissed on Boxing Day. Problem solved, surely? Well, not quite, because the news of Lunsford's dismissal hadn't spread widely enough to prevent a large and armed crowd gathering at Parliament the next morning. The mob demanded news on their previous petitions. They were duly told that Lunsford had been dismissed, but the crowd didn't disperse. What about the bishops, they asked, though not that calmly. Chants of, no bishops, no popish lords, followed both MPs and attending lords as they sought to enter Parliament. The violence only continued when it became known that Lunsford was there. He'd been summoned by the lords along with 40 other officers. When John Williams, the Archbishop of York and longtime rival of William Lord, made an unwise appearance, protesters screamed, No bishops! at the second highest ranking bishop in England. Williams responded to the protesters with grace, with calm, with godly piety, as befitted such a high-ranking member of the church. By which I mean, he punched one of the protesters in the face, which is probably one of the worst ways to de-escalate a protest. In the following brawl, Williams almost lost his gown as protesters tore at it, before a few dozen guards managed to expel the rioters from the yard of the Palace of Westminster. Among other injuries, one Richard Wiseman lay dead, from this fight. That evening, the Lords urged the Commons to join them in condemning the violence, but Pym convinced his colleagues to do nothing, quote, in any way to dishearten people to obtain their just desires in such a way, end quote. In response to this, a motion was put to the Lords that because of intimidation by the mob, Parliament was no longer freely assembled and should be prorogued. This motion was defeated. The next day, Westminster Abbey was targeted by the iconoclastic mob, who sought to rip out the organ and the altar. Archbishop Williams, who I have to imagine was just done with these protesters after his earlier experience, drove them off alongside his servants. The organ and the altar were saved, though at the cost of several more injuries and at least one more death. That day, only two bishops attended the Lords. The next day, even those two brave souls stayed away. On the 30th of December, Charles sent the Lords a petition from Archbishop Williams, puncher of men. Williams, writing on behalf of a number of other bishops, protested that because they had been unable to attend Parliament due to mob violence, the last three days of business should rightfully be considered null and void. This would mean that the earlier motion, that Parliament should be prorogued, would have to be taken again. This was, to put it lightly, a mistake. The Lords viewed this as another breach of privilege, one which cast aspersions on their previous decisions and conferred with the Commons. Pym, again seeing a coup in the offing, urged the Commons to call for the charging of the bishops with treason and the Lords followed suit. Ten of the twelve bishops in whose name the petition had been sent were arrested and taken to the Tower. One contemporary, the naval captain Robert Slingsby, 
made the ominous prophecy that if Charles did not, quote, comply with the commons in all things they desire, a sudden civil war must ensue, which every day we see approaches nearer, end quote. The French ambassador noted that if these events had taken place anywhere else, quote, the city would be in fire and blood in 24 hours. Thank you to my new members of the House of Lords, John Watson, Earl of Hillary, David, Baron Lane, Pavel, Baron Lebova, and Ben, Baron Arthur. You can join their ranks by going to patreon.com slash Pax Britannica. Every patron gets an ad-free feed and, when possible, early access to the episodes. You also have the warm, fuzzy feeling of knowing you're keeping a roof over my head. Otherwise, I'd have to podcast in a field or something. Thank you to Mark from Warlords of History for introducing today's episode. Remember to go and give his show a listen everywhere you find good podcasts. Thank you to everyone who has recommended Pax Britannica to a friend, or a loved one, or a colleague, or just random strangers you meet on the street. That's very, very useful. It's the most important way to help a podcast grow, and I'm very, very grateful for it. And thank you to everyone who's left reviews on iTunes, Samuel, Jack, the Fat General. You know who you are. Thank you so much for your lovely words. Finally, thank you to the rest of my House of Lords, to Sounds Like an Earful for providing the music used as the interval music in today's episode, and as always, to you for listening. Thank you.